Democracy is Atomic bomb. From threatening We fail. Then freedom fails. Hello and welcome to the German Marshall Fund's Out of Order podcast. My name is Peter Sparding. I'm a fellow here at GMF and I will once again function as your host for this episode. With me here in the studio as my co-host is making a triumphant return, GMF fellow Amy Studdard. Hello, nice to be back. So in previous episodes, we have mostly talked about different regions and, and countries and their role uh, in the international order. But today we wanted to take a bit of a different approach and address the question of what role the military and military power has and continues to have in shaping the international order. For this, we are extremely lucky to be joined by some actual experts uh, in the room here with us. So we're very delighted to welcome uh, a new voice to GMF and to this podcast, uh, visiting fellow Sean Turner. Hi, thanks for having me. Some of you may know Sean from other less well-known media outlets such as CNN, where he's a regular contributor, but I'm sure he's also happy to join this podcast with a slightly smaller audience. Just for those who don't know Sean, a quick introduction. Sean uh, served for a long time in the U.S. government as a senior communications executive, for example, as the deputy White House press secretary for national security and in many other roles that I cannot list here because we have limited time. But you also served for over 20 years as an officer in the United States Marine Corps. So this is clearly an area where you have a, a lot to uh, contribute. And then uh, we are especially excited uh, that we were finally able to recruit someone for this episode who we have wanted to come on for a long time, uh, ever since we started two months ago. And that's uh, GMF's Executive Vice President, uh, Derek Cholet. Welcome. Great to be here. So Derek, like Sean, does not need much of an introduction, but I'm going to give one anyway. So before joining GMF in uh, 2015, Derek served as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs. And before that, worked in the White House. And before that, worked in every other possible role in foreign policy in Washington. And has also written seven books. Is that the right number? Or co-written. Co yeah. Co-written. Okay, we're not. And the last one, of course, being uh, The Long Game, which is basically an insight account or analysis review of the Obama years and, and Obama's foreign policy. So also someone who has much to say to this topic. So let me uh, open the discussion maybe by laying out uh, kind of a, a series of questions. So as I was thinking about this, uh, the role of the military in the international order, I was struck by the fact that during the Cold War, it was very clear kind of what the role of the military was in underpinning the, at least the Western order, the international liberal order, especially the U.S. military, of course. And then after the end of the Cold War, there's a period where it becomes a bit less clear. The U.S. military is mostly engaging in, in humanitarian interventions. And then after 9-11 and the combat against terrorism and debates about international order moved more into the realm of, for example, economic cooperation with the WTO and so on. But I was reading the new national defense strategy the other day, and there it's, it's very evident that international order and the strategic competition with other powers and so on is back at the top of the list of items that are mentioned for the U.S. military to uh, engage with. So I wanted to ask Derek to give us his view on what role the military, U.S. military, but in general the military plays in underpinning the international order and, and what can we expect in the future. First, thanks, Peter, for having me here. Thanks, Amy. And it's great to be 
back with Sean, who's an old colleague from uh, government days. Uh, and you know, you asked a really good question, Peter. And I think when I think of international order, you sort of have to think of it as three legs. There are three legs to the stool. There's the economic uh, leg. There's the political leg. Uh, how we how we organize our our societies, and then of course there's the security leg. And so. You can't think of an international order without a military dimension of it. And of course, when we think about the transatlantic space and and when the liberal international order, as we came to know it, was created in the wake of World War II, the U.S. military played an indispensable part of that uh, that effort. Of course, it was because of U.S. military action that, that uh, we had the opportunity to create what we now know as a liberal international order in, in the sense of World War II. But then it was the continued presence of American troops uh, in Europe and in Asia uh, after the Second World War, which uh, helped establish longstanding relationships the United States had with our partners in Europe and Asia, helped protect U.S. national security interests, um, and helped create greater regional cooperation. So, uh, I, you can't say that the military is the only part of the liberal international order, but it's it's and and I could you could argue that without the without you could have a strong military piece of it, but if you are weak on the politics and the economics, is it a liberal international order or not? Um, but it's an in, it's an indispensable part of it. Yeah, and I think that uh, you know when the United States kind of emerged from the the Cold War uh, era as the only superpower. Uh, you know, there was this, um, as, as Derek pointed out, you know, there was this, this international, uh, there's a liberal international order that was largely based um, on security. But I think that one of the things that I've not- noted is that what we've seen over the past several decades is a shift or an evolution in the way that military power kind of undergirds that international order. Um, you know, I, I beckon back to the days after um, in 2000, around 2011, when we began to bring ho- troops home from Iraq. And there was this sense and this probably started uh, shortly after 9-11, but there was this sense that the uh, role that the U.S. military would play and kind of upholding that, uh, that world order was, was forever changed. And I think, uh, you, you know, that, that that assessment as we, as we go forward, despite what we see in the uh, current uh, uh, national security uh, assessment, is, is that's probably a legitimate assessment at this point. I think that going forward, you kind of ask, you know, kind of what, what, what we can expect. Um, I think that um, uh, that this is a this is going to be a push pull. If we look at what's happening uh, uh, across uh, across Europe and here in the United States, there's a lot of uncertainty about U.S. military power and the role that U.S. military power will play in the liberal international order. Um, and I think that for some people, uh, the as, as we continue to build and strengthen our military, some people see that certainly as a threat. Some people see that as a uh, um, a challenge to uh, stability and order around the world. So I, I think that uh, there's some uncertainty here that we're going to have to uh, uh, address going forward. I'm interested about what the shift was. I thought that, Peter, you framed it very well when you said, you know, there's been a transition in how we conceive of this. And, and you just kind of got to that a little bit as well. But what is it that we think has changed? Because the American military hasn't shrunk. The European military um, militaries haven't shrunk. Um so that piece hasn't changed. You've had other powers that have certainly increased their military spending, and China, of course, being the um, being the outlier there. Um, there's been rapid technological change, of course. Um, so now it's not necessarily the case that you know tanks and soldiers are 
the sum total of what you need um, when it comes to the military. And perhaps, you know, military dominance isn't what it once was as a deterrent because of those other um, tools, security tools other actors have and, and that the U.S. has. But I don't, I'd love to put my finger on what it is about the strategic environment that has changed so much that other powers are now sort of challenging the U.S. strategic role. Well, I, I think that the, 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 the primary issue there is that there is uh, a, a, a lack of desire, a lack of appetite for large military interventions in the way that we saw them in, in past decades. Um, you know, we, the U.S. military still has a, a very significant and robust forward deployed presence. Uh, but when we think about the, uh, the approach that the U.S. military will take to, uh, to ensuring stability around the world, it's very much, it's, it's not a, 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 a boots on the ground type of hands, hands-on, face-to-face approach. And that makes a difference in terms of maintaining a liberal international order uh, around the globe. I think that when we're talking about uh, this kind of uh, remote approach to uh, uh, to dealing with unrest and and attempting to stabilize uh, uh, volatile situations, uh, that 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 uh, has a very different feel for the international community. Uh, when we have uh, troops on the ground, when we're when we're forward deployed, when we're engaging with uh, adversaries uh, uh, and our partners and allies as well in a more robust uh, way, uh, I think that that actually has an impact on on maintaining that level of order. That's really interesting because it seems like you're suggesting that the important thing isn't just or isn't necessarily the threat aspect of the military, but instead it's the engagement capacity, the human-to-human engagement capacity. Absolutely. It, it always has been, and uh, because we have... Uh, come to a point where, uh, for uh, arguably uh, good reasons, uh, it's just really unlikely that we're going to see major deployments of U.S. troops around the world. Uh, you take that aspect of it away, but that what you haven't taken away is an understanding of the um, the fierceness of the U.S. military. Uh, it is still a force that uh, you know in, in in days past that you you know if you're going to engage with the U.S. military, oftentimes that would be. A face-to-face confrontation. Now we use a lot of drones. We use a lot of remote technology. We use special operations. So uh, our adversaries adversaries certainly don't know where those uh, those efforts are coming from. And I think that for our partners and allies around the world, it's just a very different feel with regard to engaging the military. I mean, I guess I have a slightly different take. If you think of the U.S. military posture around the world, where our forces are located. You've seen a lot of continuity, significant U.S. force presence in Asia, significant in, in Europe. In fact, it's gone up in the past few years in Europe quite quite a bit. And the Trump administration has continued the trajectory that the Obama administration had begun in terms of force deployments, particularly in Eastern Europe. But also you're seeing an enduring U.S. presence in the Middle East, despite all the talk of Obama's withdrawal from the Middle East. And of course, he did wind down the war in Iraq. We, The United States maintained a very robust force presence in the Middle East. Still before the ISIS crisis exploded in 2014, the United States still had more forces uh, on land, at sea, and air assets in the Middle East than it had before 9-11. So it was anything but a full, quote-unquote, withdrawal from from the Middle East, and similarly in in Europe and Asia. And also at the same time, as Sean noted, that U.S. military has been steadily engaged in combat operations uh, either in fights against terrorist groups like ISIS or the fight against extremist groups in North Africa um, uh, for 16, 17 years now. And uh, that's coming from an era during the Cold War where, of course, we, we were 
it's, it was punctuated by conflicts in Korea and in Vietnam. Um, but, uh, you know, the U.S. military was, was, was quite large and was forward deployed in even more significant ways, but in many ways didn't see a lot of action other than those, than those major conflicts that, that it was in in Vietnam and Korea, whereas we've been in continuous operations since, uh, since 9-11 in many parts of the world. And this gets to Amy's question on the future, which I think one of the things that's interesting about the national defense strategy that the Defense Department outlined uh, a few weeks ago, which by the way, as someone who served in the Obama Defense Department, I think there's a lot to like in the current def- national defense strategy. To be honest, uh, and I attended uh, General Mattis, Secretary Mattis's uh, speech where he rolled out the defense strategy a few weeks ago here in Washington. And it was a speech that a Secretary of Defense under Hillary Clinton could have given. Um, it was, uh, there's a lot of continuity suggested in the national defense strategy. And one of the more interesting points that he makes, and this gets to Amy's question about what is changing, is that the United States is losing its strategic superiority uh, across every realm of military operations, cyber, space, uh, land, air, and sea. And it doesn't mean that we've lost it. It just means that others are catching up. Relatively. Relatively. I mean, I mean, China and Russia and others are investing heavily in technologies of the future. One of the things that I think was very good in the national defense strategy was a reaffirmation of a policy that, that the Obama pe- Pentagon had put into place to uh, shape the force of the future and to invest in new technologies. Uh, because right now, that's something that, that countries that are adversarial to the United States, not necessarily full-on adversaries, but certainly adversarial like a China, are investing heavily in artificial intelligence uh, and doing more and more in the digital domain. And that's something that will shape the future and it, w- it will threaten the United States and the liberal international order. So it's important that we make those investments. So whereas we, we, have made, we still have a lot of, of uh, work to do to maintain our, 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 the ability of our forces and the men and women serving. There's also a lot of investments that need to make, just as we did during the Cold War, whether it was investing in nuclear technology in the 50s and the 60s or stealth and precision, uh, precision technology in the 70s and 80s. Uh, to today, and in in particularly investing in things like artificial intelligence uh, and and things in the digital realm. And I would just add that that what has to keep pace with uh, with what Derek just laid out is policy has to keep pace with right. uh, with advances in technology. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, many things that um, uh, is kind of a area of unknown is you know kind of our approach to uh, to cyber when it comes to how we classify cyber and how we think of cyber in term in, in terms of uh, of, uh, of warfare and uh, so I, I agree that uh, you know we've got some uh, some questions to uh, to get answered there I, I would also point out that and I think Derek you made a very good point about um, the fact that we are, we do still have a lot of forces for deployed and um, a, a major presence one of the things that you'll find uh, at DOD, and this has actually been a good thing in the in the uh, Trump administration, is that uh, in the latter years of the Obama administration, there was presence, but there was a um, there was a precipitous decrease in engagement. Mm. And one of the things that you're seeing now is you're you're seeing that because the the Trump administration is kind of delegating more responsibility to the generals, that there is an increase in engagement under the Trump administration with uh, some of those. Uh, um, partners and allies who are working with us to to go after adversaries. And I think that's that's a positive and significant move. Can I just um, pick up on something that Derek just mentioned? Um, you described Secretary Mattis' rollout as a speech or 
that could have been given under other administrations. So there's a, a lot of continuity and whether there might be too much uh, continuity, we can discuss a bit later. But I wanted to ask, one thing that struck me also in this document is that there's a lot of talk about allies and the importance yeah. that allies play. Yeah. And now that we've basically talked a bit about more in general terms, uh, I wanted to talk, uh, turn it to the current moment mm -hmm. because there's this discrepancy and we, people have talked about basically there are two U.S. administrations. You have the rollout of the document that that reads like a like any other uh, document would and then you know you have uh, let, let's say some uh, more issues with allies than than you would have in, in previous um, administrations so how how can or does this fit together is this you know can we do this uh, for three more years is is this tenable well I think it's charitable to say there's only two administrations I think that's, <laughs> I'd factor I'd factor that by five I guess uh Look, this uh, I don't have a clear answer to this. Uh, you know, Secretary Mattis in his in the in the strategy he announced in the speech, uh, he talked about the importance of strong alliances. Mattis says often he's never fought a battle without a ally by his side. Uh, he talked about how the military can, is only one tool in the toolbox that the military alone cannot build and and protect and strengthen the liberal international order. It requires healthy economy, and that's why he stressed the budget and the budget, uh, getting the budget right here in the United States, but also, more importantly, the State Department. And in fact, you know, the way Mattis describes things, the way many secretaries of defense describe things, is the, the military is subordinate in many ways to what decisions made, that di the diplomats make. Well, obviously, that, that, that does not comport with the current reality here in the United States in terms of the Trump administration. And Uh, one of the challenges we have sitting here in Washington and listeners will have uh, who are trying to decipher what the hell's going on here is that um, the president doesn't buy in any of this. I mean, he, he doesn't, uh, you know, I think, I don't, I think in, of the three words, liberal, international, and order, the only one he likes is order. The reason why I think you would, I give a little more credence when I look at the national defense strategy and, and Mattis's uh, ability to, to deliver on it is it is, followed by numbers, right? What they say about uh, strategic documents is that, you know, a budget without without a strategy is are just numbers and a strategy without a budget is just an essay. And what happened was that, in the, the good news is that in the wake of Mattis's release of the national defense strategy, a budget was passed and that budget included a lot of spending on the U.S. military. And so he can back up a lot of those words with investment and with spending. And so despite what Trump may tweet at any particular moment, uh, I do expect, and I'm confident that because there's support in Congress for a lot of what's in the national defense strategy, we'll see in the coming years the kind of investment to meet the challenges that were outlined in, in the strategy. But I don't know that that necessarily means that the strategy can be an accurate guide to those trying to figure out what, what the United States may or may not do when it comes to specific crises in North Korea or what it's going to do in Syria or how it may handle Russia. Right. But, but I, I have to agree that this strategy did lay out an appropriate role for the military and for the Department of Defense. And uh, I'll tell you, I, I've, uh, I've said in meetings with, uh, with General Madison, and I, he understands that the State Department should be in the lead when it comes to dealing with some of the, the crises around the, around the country that we hear talked about in military contexts all the time. Uh, and so I think that if he is put in a position where he can actually follow this strategy and that despite what's tweeted and despite what, uh, what's coming out of the White House, he's allowed to execute this plan, then I think that we'll be in a much better place in, in a couple of years. 
But I mean, to Derek's point that the military is one instrument of power, it strikes me that while China and Russia both have, for bad reasons, strong governments that are able to execute on future-facing visions in which every tool and every instrument is used to good or ill effect to serve that vision, the U.S. doesn't have that. There's no sign of that coming down the pipeline that I can see. I mean, as Obama would say about Russia, Russia is in many ways a regional power with a very strong military, but it doesn't have much of a diplomatic or economic game to speak of. Um, uh, and its military game is probably not what it's cracked up to be. It, it's, it, it, you know, I think we can, they're not 10 feet tall either. Um, uh, and they don't want to go head to head with the U.S. military in any, on any day, Right. That said, China is a different story. I mean, China, as we've all been watching over the last decade plus now, has certainly tried to play a more aggressive political and diplomatic game. Its economic game is quite strong, and its military game is getting stronger. And that's what's so concerning to defense analysts is as we're watching China make significant strides in its own force development, either in catching up to the United States in terms of strategic parity in certain realms, or in some instances, particularly in some of the, the new technology space getting ahead of the United States, that's very, very concerning for us as a military, as we just think, you know, fight on fight, or or as we're thinking of constructing this and, 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 and continuing this larger liberal international order, if countries like China are going to define the future in terms of how we think about artificial intelligence, for example, that's going to be pretty consequential to all of us who, who currently enjoy the freedoms that we do. Yeah, and, they, and China is making unbelievable strides. And I do think that what, when I think about this, we do have to separate it out a little bit. I mean, when I think about, as Derek pointed out, look, when it comes to military might, the U.S. is the strongest military on the face of the earth, and that's not going to change. But having the strongest military on the face of the earth as technology advances and there be, as, as we look at more ways to, um, uh, to act in adversarial ways— uh, you know, China's, uh, China's uh, progress, the gains they're making, become more significant. Uh, we look at the, the strides they're making in the cyber realm. We look at what they're doing in our, with artificial intelligence. Uh, we even, even, even their economic uh, uh, gains, we look at what they're, what they're buying up around the world. Those things become much more significant. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't change the fact that our military will still always uh, uh, rule the day, but those other things uh, can certainly serve as, uh, as threats to other aspects of our culture and our society. Can I ask, so um, we do have two Europeans in the room, but not two European military experts. So I'm going to ask the uh, Americans in the room maybe to take a look at Europe from here. Um, so we've discussed the U.S. right now, and obviously in the Western alliance, the U.S. is still, especially in military terms, and, and will be for the foreseeable future, the key actor. But what do you make of, uh, of the developments in, in Europe? There's, of course, some uncertainty about the U.S. ever since... Um, Donald Trump's election, and there have been there's been some talk about you know increased cooperation. But what what role uh, does the does this discussion play in Europe from a U.S. perspective? If you if you have any view on that, well, I think with Europe it's been quite interesting because uh, although the overall story of uh, in the United States of what's happening in European militaries is the distance is growing between the United States and Europe. In capabilities or in... Cap well, mainly in capabilities and the concern, and this is why we see all this, this incessant insistence on the 2% uh, spending of GDP on defense spending is because there's a fear that as the U.S. is now coming out of this era of austerity where the defense budget had been, had, had suffered, I mean, it was still significant, but it had gone down a bit and the Trump administration is putting more into defense, 
that that this gap will only get wider. I mean, European militaries, and it should be very important to note that Europeans, uh, not all European countries, but many have been fighting alongside American forces uh, either in the air, in, over Syria and Iraq, or on the ground in places like Iraq, some in Syria and North Africa. So, you know, there are countries that, that have really stepped up their game. But the overall trend is one that concerns a lot of Americans. Now, we, at the same time, we've seen interesting debates in countries like Germany, for example, over the last several years. You have to remember this. Germany was a country that 20 years ago uh, had, had, had its first out-of-area operations since World War II was in the Balkans, in Bosnia and Kosovo. There was a very significant shift in, in German strategic thinking, right? A country that had basically... Uh, been told and had been created out of its, it created an identity that its military was not to be used anywhere outside of its borders, was being used first in the Balkans. If we were sitting here 17 years ago in 2001 and, and I had said that the German military would be continuously de- deployed in Afghanistan for 17 years as part of a NATO mission, we would have, no one would have thought that that was something within, remotely within the realm of the possible. So there's been a lot of progress there. That said, uh, for a lot of reasons right now in, in a country like Germany, which is if you know, significant, most significant economy in Europe, uh, not the kind of spending on, on defense that many Americans would like to see. There's it's complicated reasons for that in terms of Germany's own politics. To be honest, a lot of this is because Donald Trump is calling for it. And so it's just politically toxic in a country like Germany to, uh, to, to, um, to spend more. But I, w- I do want to also just point out one other piece of good news, which is the U.S. relationship militarily with France, for example, has been one that over the last five years has evolved in a very positive way. Uh, and in part, that's a factor of changes in French leadership. It's also inter- It's also partly what's happening within the broader European landscape. And I think the preoccupation in the United Kingdom with its own internal drama, whether it was the Scottish referendum all the way up till Brexit and the Brexit aftermath has led to a UK that for many US military uh, folks, US mil- UK still our spe- special relationship and all that, but we're just, we've been socialized to expect less of the UK, whereas countries like France are stepping up even more. I think Derek represents the American perspective perfectly. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, okay, so let me let me turn to one other question that, that um, comes up in, in my mind on this. So um, Derek earlier described the... Um, the order, international order, is uh, three stools, you know, political, economic, Three military. legs, one stool. Three legs, three legs exactly, sorry. Stool. Three legs to one stool. And um, I'm wondering right now, there seems to be a lot of focus again on, on the military leg. Um, in, in a way, there have been debates, especially in, in Washington on this, uh, ever since the very long um, commitments in Afghanistan and, and Iraq. Is, is this, are we asking too much of the military? Can the military by itself... Um, deliver this. I mean, there's you know quite a number of areas now um, that the military seems to be the answer to the question. Is that something that um, that you guys agree with, or disagree with? You know, look, I, I think historically we have uh, leaned on the military, depended on the military for um, for missions that were outside of its primary purpose because of the military's ability, because of their capacity and capability to. 
to uh, uh, do things, to go places, and to accomplish missions that uh, would have taken others a significant amount of time and effort to to be able to uh, uh, to accomplish. Uh, that does not mean that the military should be the primary. Uh, uh, the, the, the primary individuals or primary uh, uh, people responsible for those kinds of missions. Uh, you know, I used to be in the Marine Corps and in the Marine Corps, you know, we have these Marine Expeditionary Units and, you know, a lot of the, what people don't know is, you know, these ships out at sea, you know, they have tens of thousands of diapers and hygiene products. They have all of this, these packages that are, that are there just in case the military is called in to go and deal with a, uh, a humanitarian crisis. And that's great. The military can go and do that. But what we've done is, is we've gotten uh, beyond this idea that the military was to is, is in a position to go in and to deal with those in the very near term for a very short period of time, and then to withdraw and let other appropriate uh, entities come in and handle those those issues. Uh, what we've done is we've gotten to a situation where we found that the military is doing it quite well, and over time we get mission creep, and we find that the military that was supposed to be there for 30 days has now been there for six months, and there's no end in sight. Um, and uh, and what that does is it stretches the military. It, uh, it it interferes with training. It takes our military out of the more traditional role that they're supposed to be in of uh, of uh, ensuring our national security. Yeah, I think I'm really glad Sean mentioned diapers because one, <laughs> uh, uh, he was a Marine for 21 years. But I, I one of the things I I love about the U.S. Marine Corps is that the ethos of the Marine Corps is. They're full service. They, you want us to change a diaper, we change a diaper. If you want us to kick down a door, we kick down a door, right? And that's, but that actually encapsulates the greatness of the United States military is that it can, it can do almost anything. And I say that as, as, a, as a proud American exceptionalist, that the U.S. military is second to none. The, what that leads to then in too many cases, as our military leaders will be the first to, to say, is that it all gets put on the military. You guys are so good at your job and often you're the ones, or not often, almost always, you've got the most resources and your ability to get to the problem fastest. Uh, that it all, that, And then at the same time, the other institutions, whether it's the State Department or the U.S. Agency for National Development, are weakened because of budget cuts uh, or because of a lack of leadership or an unwillingness to fill senior positions. I could go on a whole rant on that. Uh, that it's the military's left holding the bag. And, and so I think intellectually, everyone agrees that that you cannot leave it all to the military. Uh, uh, but the reality is, is, and that's sort of the illogic of the overall uh, U.S. strategy right now, is that, as I said, the, the national defense strategy, there's a lot to like there. And I, I, think, I think, you know, if they, can, if they can pursue that, all we're all the better. But as Mattis himself said, it's got to fit within a larger strategy, and there that's lacking. And so the idea that you're going to give the Defense Department all this money, which I think it needs, and you're going to pursue this robust national defense strategy, which I think is smart, the idea you're going to do that, but at the same time decapitate the State Department, gut it, make USAID weaker, that, that does nothing than just leave the military as the only tool that you're really going to use. So is there then, just as a, as a last question, I know that um, there's, there are some foreign policy thinkers who also um, see this role critically and, and say uh, there's too much continuity. Um, I mean, some of that is even, I think, in, in your book, uh, The Long Game, that there's been um, or too much, not continuity, but too much uh, of the same thinking going on on some of these issues, to, to sum it up. So if, if we discuss that the military is now uh, getting all these, uh, these tasks thrown at it, and it's increasingly fewer people who have basically for the 
U.S. society who do these tasks in ever uh, longer periods. Um, is there not a danger then of um, of, of uh, too much um, uh, too much to ask of the military? And is there is there not not something to it to maybe ask for more restraint in in uh, using the military? Well, I, I think that there's there's no doubt that uh, there should be a, um, a a more measured approach with regard to uh, using the military for some of the uh, uh, you know some of the non traditional missions that we've we've and we put in front of them. Other government agencies often say when we have this discussion, they often say, "Well, if you'll give me just a small percentage of DoD's budget, then we will go and do those those things." Uh, but as, as Derek pointed out, uh, you know, the, the U.S. military has o over decades and decades have developed the ability to go out and perform these missions in a way that is, uh, is just unmatched by any other organization in, in government. And so uh, we, we continuously fall back on this, this idea that, you know, like when you've got an emergency, you've got to go and you've got to get something done now that we, we go to the military again. But what, I, what I'm uh, trying to get at is also there has been, some people have been saying, and I, I know politicians have been saying this, we've done too much nation building abroad, for example, we need to do nation building at home. Is there not the danger of losing um, public um, support for this if, if so much keeps getting asked of the, of the military? And does that, you know, some people have asked, Does the U.S. military need to be represented this this broadly in the world, or is that? Um well, you know, it's interesting because uh, uh, you know you you cited nation building at home, which is sort of a line that that Barack Obama is most associated with. I think actually anyone who looks back over the last decade, I wonder if they ask themselves now, do we think we should be doing less nation building at home, given where we are right now? Um, but. Uh, You know, I, it's interesting. Is like as, as Sean said, the the military, the under, particularly under Trump, has been delegated a lot of authority. But uh, what may sound counterintuitive to many of of our listeners here is that the military is pretty careful with that authority. And what you've seen is a lot of a delegation to the generals, but they know that then it's on them if something goes wrong. And so, what you've seen is a a kind of steady incremental evolution of, of U.S. military policy in some areas. Uh, but there hasn't been a radical shift at all in the U.S. approach to Syria. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not a, a big nation-building effort. In fact, the Trump administration is coming under a lot of criticism for the fact that a war is raging in Syria, and we're seeing incredible violence there. The war is far from over and the U.S. policy really hasn't changed much. Um, so I think, you know, President Trump, it, there's a there's a kernel of of truth in something that he's tapped into, uh, which President Obama tapped into it. And to be honest, at the end of his administration, George W. Bush tapped into it. Is that these kind of big, large scale efforts that we saw in Afghanistan and Iraq in the early 2000s are not something the American people are signing up for? They have signed up for, and they continue to support. As we said earlier in this conversation, what has been a steady state of ongoing military operations in many parts of the world. I mean, the U.S. military today is more engaged in more places in more ways than it has been at almost any moment in our in the post-World War II history. Uh, now, we don't have 150,000 troops sitting in Iraq today, but every day a, a man or woman in uniform either straps themselves into a cockpit or gets into a trailer somewhere in Nevada to drive a drone and drops bombs to kill people, right? And, and those people are, happen to be those who 
are extremists who want to kill us. Uh, so that's, that's, I mean, that may be restrained by the measurement of 150,000 troops in Iraq, but that's a very active U.S. military posture. There are some people who believe that that's the wrong thing to do. I personally think it's, think it's the right thing to do. But, uh, and it's something, by the way, the U.S. is not doing alone. Um, but uh, I think that there is this reluctance overall that, that we're going to get engaged in these large-scale efforts, and, and I don't think that we can resource it. I don't think there's a political support for it on the large-scale efforts. And it's, it's an interesting time from the perspective that, as Derek pointed out, you know, with all the military engagement that we do have around the world, you know, and uh, some people disagree with this, but, uh, you know, we are actually more inwardly focused as a nation than we've been in a very long time. Uh, and I say that thinking about it much more from a, from a diplomatic perspective. So at the same time that we have all of these operations around the world, we have troops, uh, 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 you know, doing good work in all these different places. Uh, we are still not in, engaging in the way that uh, that we we've done in years past, and I do think that 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 difference uh, does put more pressure on the military to kind of be those ambassadors out there for the United States. Okay, I think that's a a good point to uh, wrap it up. Uh, this discussion, is, I don't think, will be the last time we have this topic on this um, podcast, but we are coming to the. Uh, infamous final segment of our show called Think or Tank, where we each represent something that made us think or that we thought tanked. So, um, Amy, do you want to go first? So I wanted to recommend a essay um, that I read a couple days ago called The Rise of Anti-Liberalism, um, which was in The Atlantic, and it's by a guy called Shadi Hamid, who's a scholar at the Brookings Institution. Um, it's a really interesting look at, you know, and, and it focuses on, on the liberal part of the international liberal order um, and, you know, the sort of rise of extremism and identity quests in various different ways, whether it's to do with, you know, gender or race or whatever it is. Um, and it sort of focuses on the liberalism is kind of like walking into a supermarket and having limitless choice, right? And is that necessarily what we want? Do we actually want something that's meaningful, where our lives are about sort of accommodating the people around us and negotiating with the people around us? Um, so it was just a really interesting take on that. Um, it reminded me of the first time I realized that sort of liberalism wasn't what everybody wanted, that it wasn't actually the case that everybody wanted to fr be as free as I was and, um, and, and and go to all the restaurants and drink all the booze and do whatever they wanted to do, um, was when Paris got attacked. And it was specifically an attack on young people and the liberal identity of young Parisians. Um, and it sort of reminded me of that, which of course was long before Brexit and, and Trump, but I think you can sort of see threads in this search for community and identity that then manifests in this horrific way. Derek, do you have? Uh, sure, I, I have a think and a tank. Wow. All right, so first I'll start with a think. Um, obviously, I read a lot about U.S. foreign policy, U.S. national security issues, but I find often I learn the most when I read uh, about things that have nothing to do with foreign policy. Uh, when I say learn the most, learn the most about foreign policy and, and think the most. And so an essay that I read recently that was published about a year ago in The New Yorker is by Atul Gawande, who's a surgeon at uh, up in Boston, and he's written a lot of books on medicine. Uh, and this is an essay in The New Yorker entitled The, the Heroism of Incremental Care. 
and he talks about how in the culture of medicine we we valorize the hero the the brilliant surgeon who comes in and saves the day you know with the patient uh, you know dying on the table and that in fact though when you t- step back and think about it we need to of course those people deserve our respect and they in fact are very play a very important role in medicine but what's equally important but often underappreciated is the the sort of methodical sometimes boring but nevertheless crucial part of incremental care you know primary care physicians I mean, primary care physicians aren't necessarily seen as the gods of the medical profession but those those are the frontliners those are the folks who actually matter the most and and so it makes it makes me it's very fascinating about medicine and you learn a lot about the, about uh, what doctors do and the culture of the medical profession, but that but what was so interesting to me is thinking about how that can apply to foreign policy, and that often the most important parts of implementing foreign policy are not the crisis moments. They're not they're not the uh, you know the swashbuckling diplomats or military officers. It's the it's the kind of steady, patient, methodical work that gets done every day. Um, and, and oftentimes the policies that prove to be the most important over the lifetime of a presidency, for example, are the ones that uh, aspire to do big things, but you get there incrementally, right? And I can think of several examples in the Obama administration where that certainly was the case. Uh, Trump, this, is not, that doesn't, this doesn't comport well with Trumpism. It's, not, it's very different. Uh, uh, so, but anyway, that's, that's a... That's a that's a piece I recommend to all listeners is something that, that makes one think a lot. Tank, I said a lot of nice things about Jim Mattis during the last half hour or so. I uh, love him. He's a great guy. But I can't understand why Secretary of Defense would go to the Munich Security Conference, uh, which was just recently, uh, and show up and sit in the audience and not say anything. Uh, it just doesn't make any sense to me as a former staffer who would advise the Secretary of Defense to do trips. I can't imagine telling my boss to go to a conference and sit there in the audience while other defense ministers talked and you just sat Especially there. Especially the U.S. Secretary of Defense. Except the Secretary of Defense. <laughs> right. Like, you know, uh, that, uh, you know, that doesn't make much sense to me. And so that, I don't, I, maybe the intent was to go and to do important bilateral meetings and to show up and just, you know, showing up is half the battle. But I actually feel like uh, the optic created was of a U.S. that was sort of, slowly receding. Um, and so that was a tank. There were some questions. I, I mean, the one excuse, he's not a politician. No politician would have gone and not given a speech, but uh, so, so maybe it's it, there. It, but. It's, he's a big boy. He yeah. knows, he <laughs> he knows what he's doing. Okay. This is, uh, you know. We don't know. Mystery. Yeah. Sean. So I'm going to take a little bit of liberty here. And, and uh, since we've talked a lot about the military, I'm going to uh, talk about uh, something I think is a tank. Uh, that uh, is kind of based on uh, my experience in the military and one of the pressing uh, domestic issues that we're dealing with uh, here in the United States. Uh, As uh, our listeners probably know, there's a uh, significant debate happening in this country right now over the issue of gun control and what should happen in this country with regard to gun control. And uh, one of the issues that has been raised, uh, the many issues that have been raised as we look for causal factors, Uh, and solutions is this idea of uh, having armed teachers in our schools here in the United States. Um, And when I, when I heard this suggestion as was put out there, it made me think of, uh, uh, you know, kind of the way that we in the military approach military operations. And we're always taught that the very first thing that you do if you're executing a military operation is that you eliminate things that might be a threat to your success. 
And so what I found myself thinking is I found myself thinking about all of these teachers around the country who might be in a position where they're in classrooms with weapons. And then I thought about the end of the potential uh, school shooter. And I thought, you know, if a school shooter has the wherewithal to be able to go out and buy weapons and sit down and plan an attack and execute the attack, he certainly has the wherewithal to think that he should probably take out the threat to his success first. And so um, I, I just, I think that this idea that we would have teachers standing in front of our, our students every day with the knowledge that if a shooter comes through that door, I'm the first target, is just a, uh, it's just a terrible idea. I, I think that's a, that idea is a, a complete tank. And uh, I'll, just, I'll just add to that, that I, I think that we, we have to have a little bit of intellectual honesty in this country about this issue and, and to, uh, to go ahead and admit that uh, if we don't believe that there should be some legislative solution to help address this issue, then through our inaction, what we necessarily are saying, what we necessarily are investing in is this idea that these shootings are an acceptable price to pay for the guns that we hold so dear. And I think that that is just a uh, untenable position. I will only second that. And this is one of the things um, that is baffling to me uh, as a European that um, this po this policy uh, proposition was, I've, I've seen many that I disagree with or found non-convincing. This one I thought was a joke uh, and then it was actually made seriously and I don't understand it. Um, but I have a thing so we can end on a happy note. Um, so I'm going to uh, talk a bit about um, this article from Thomas Etzel in the New York Times a few weeks ago. It's called Why It's So Hard for Democracy to Deal with Inequality. And we've talked about maybe having a discussion about that issue here at some point. And he gives a really good rundown of why um, democracies struggle with addressing this issue. Although you might think rising inequality, why do people not react with their votes and just change the, the, the policies? And he has a, a lot of... Um, good uh, points that he's making or that he's presenting from the research that uh, go all the way from polarization in politics, money in politics, immigration, gerrymandering, and, and also racism. So that's a, a really good starting point for people interested in that discussion. And um, we will link to all of these uh, pieces uh, in our show notes. So I think with that, thank you very much, Sean and Derek. Thanks for having us. It's great being here. Thanks, Amy, for uh, co-hosting with me, and we'll talk to you soon. Out of Order is a German Marshall Fund podcast produced by Kelsey Glover. Sound design engineered by Zachary Tarrant.